for one person anyway. So <laughs> let's open our Bibles or navigate on your electronic device to Jeremiah chapter 19 and to verse 14. That's where we're going to put in. And we're going to uh, read through chapter 20, verse 18. Jeremiah 19, 14, to get us started. The topic we'll find there, Jeremiah tried to quit delivering God's prophecies only to find that God's word was a fire in his bones. The title of our message, The Bone Fire of the Prophecies. How many of you have any idea what that's in reference to? All right, well, you could have laughed. You didn't have to be. You didn't have, there was, okay, there was a famous movie, book, and I think it's a Greek tragedy called The Bonfire of the Vanities. Who remembers that now from going to school? Were you all public schooled? Is that the problem? <laughs> or maybe you were all homeschooled, depending on your crowd. So anyway, uh, The Bonfire of the Prophecies. Let's have a word of prayer. No laughter during prayer. <laughs> Haven't started yet. Father, thank you for our morning. Uh, and we thank you for the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, the ability to laugh, Lord, which is good medicine for our souls, the Bible says. At the same time, Lord, as we encounter this word this morning, it's pretty serious, Lord, in terms of Jeremiah revealing his heart and what was going on in his life. I pray, Lord, that it would be a wonderful encouragement to those of us who are hurting, those of us who know sorrow and are acquainted with grief, maybe even despair of life itself from time to time that you administer to us through this, Lord, as we seek to, to know you in a more vital, vibrant way. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I remember our Sega Genesis system back in the stone ages of video game consoles playing NBA Jam. When you really got going and were about to dunk over the head of your opponent, the ball would flame and the announcer would exclaim, he's on fire. Remember that? Are you Dan Patrick fans? He would say, en fuego. So we're bilingual this morning. I just, that's the Spanish portion of our study right there. What'd you learn at church today? En fuego. Christians are sometimes described as being on fire for the Lord. It means they're totally committed, sold out, going for it in their walk with the Lord. Jeremiah was on fire for the Lord. He said of himself in verse nine of chapter 20, his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And as we'll see publicly, he was on fire in the traditional sense, proclaiming God's word with boldness. Privately, however, he was experiencing fire in a very different way. When he spoke of the fire in his heart and bones, it was during a time in which he was trying to quit serving the Lord. He went on to say right after that, I was weary of holding back the word, indicating he was exerting a great deal of effort trying to quench the internal fire. There are then at least these two ways to be on fire. The first is the public way in which you are advancing the kingdom of God. But the second is a private way in which you wrestle with doubts and fears and as we'll see, can despair even of life itself. I'm so thankful for Jeremiah's honesty. Otherwise, I might think I'm the only one who sometimes feels this way privately. I'm gonna organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you have a mission to speak forcefully to men. Number two, you have permission to speak freely to God. 
Let's take a look first of all at Jeremiah speaking forcefully to men. And by forcefully, I simply mean with authority. It's the word of God you are speaking by which men can have their sins forgiven and be saved or by which they remain condemned in their sins. Jeremiah spoke with authority in the temple at Jerusalem. We pick it up in verse 14 of chapter 19. Then Jeremiah came from Tophet, where the Lord had sent him to prophesy, and he stood in the court of the Lord's house and said to all the people, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring on this city and all her towns all the doom that I have pronounced against it, because they have stiffened their necks that they might not hear my words." This message wasn't really recorded for us. Jeremiah is giving a message in the temple. This isn't the entire message. It's just uh, the summary having the usual theme that Judah was inevitably to be humbled by an invading nation. Jeremiah did introduce a new illustration here. When he called them stiff-necked, the people would have understood him to be comparing them to disobedient oxen who would not take direction from the master plowing with them. They would stiffen their neck and not uh, turn one way or the other. At least one person in the crowd had heard enough. Verse 1 of chapter 20, now Pashur, the son of Immer, the priest who was also chief governor in the house of the Lord, heard that Jeremiah prophesied these things. Then Pashur struck Jeremiah the prophet, put him in the stocks that were in the high gate of Benjamin, which was by the house of the Lord. Pashur was the chief of the temple police force, tasked with maintaining order. Although he was not posing any real threat, Peshur determined to punish Jeremiah. When it says he struck him, it most likely means he had Jeremiah flogged. Uh, you remember the scourging or the flogging of Jesus or Paul the Apostle? The legal way of doing it was, for, it was 40 lashes, uh, but they would only do 39 in case they counted incorrectly because they didn't want to go over 40. And it was with a whip or, uh, you know, that was embedded, leather whip with many uh, prongs that was embedded with glass and broken bone and things like that. And a lot of people didn't survive a flogging. Afterwards, he locked him in the stocks, which is exactly what you think they were, and it was an incredibly painful, contorted position for your body to maintain. Do you, do you ever just feel, you ever get contorted? I don't even like to be on an airplane too long, more than five minutes, and if I can't get up, I, I just feel all contorted. Imagine really being locked in stocks, your hands, your feet, and your head, uh, and as we'll see, overnight. And so Jeremiah was really going through it. This is the first, but sadly not the last, physical pro uh, persecution of God's prophet. Verse three. It happened the next day that Pashur brought Jeremiah out of the stocks. Then Jeremiah said to him, the Lord has not called your name Pashur, but Magor Misabib. Man, I love that. All week I've been just, isn't that a great name? Magor Misabib. I mean, it's, it's a terrible thing, but I, I mean, it sounds like you're really introducing somebody. Ladies and gentlemen, Magor Misabib. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I, it, little things excite me now. Give me an espresso and magor misabib and I'm, I'm ready to go. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies and your eyes shall see it. I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall carry them captive to Babylon and slay them with the sword. 
Moreover, I will deliver all the wealth of this city, all its produce and all its precious things, all the treasures of the kings of Judah. I will give into the hand of their enemies who will plunder them, seize them, and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pashur, and all who dwell in your house shall go into captivity. You shall go to Babylon, and there you shall die and be buried there, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied lies." A night spent in the stocks after a brutal beating did nothing to dampen Jeremiah's fire for the word of God. He boldly proclaimed Peshur's new name to be fear on every side. That's what those words mean. It was a prediction of what Peshur could expect to happen to him. The name change was accompanied by a prophecy in which Babylon was named as the invader for the first time. Talk about being on fire. Jeremiah came through the persecution with a holy boldness, and he, without hesitation, continued his preaching. Like Jeremiah, we have a message to share, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have an audience to share it with. It's our family, our friends, and everyone we might come into contact with. The same power that emboldened Jeremiah even after a brutal beating and an imprisonment in the stocks, that same power indwells us and can propel us to share the gospel. Be encouraged, but understand this. If you serve the Lord with uh, boldness, you will also come face to face with tremendous discouragement. And that's the meaning of the bulk of our verses in chapter 20 where we see that you have permission to speak freely with God. We're going to wonder if these verses really describe the same guy we just saw boldly rebuke the chief of police. They do, and that is why they are so meaningful to us in our own private times of despair. Verse 7, O Lord, you induced me. I was persuaded. You are stronger than I and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. When I spoke, I cried out. I shouted violence and plunder because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. Now, you might recall that Jeremiah was initially reluctant to answer God's call. He said, I'm a young man. I don't want to do this, etc., etc." But looking back on it, now he was of the opinion that God persuaded him to answer the call by overpowering him. Uh, we might say, he might say to God, you tricked me. Uh, I had no idea what I was getting into. I didn't realize how hard it was going to be. After all, you're God, and what was I supposed to do? I, I couldn't say no to you. It's a pretty serious, terrible accusation. Now, I hang with other pastors from time to time, and I'll tell you, I don't know any pastor who hasn't at one time or another thought this, Lord, you tricked me, you fooled me, you pressured me into the ministry. I had no idea what this was going to be like. This is ridiculous, and, and it's only because you're bigger and stronger than me and able to beat me up, basically. You're a big bully, God, and, and you feel this way sometimes. Now, Jeremiah's recollections, they're not entirely true. The Lord told him from the start that his ministry would be difficult. And you don't have to be in the ministry as a pastor or a missionary to have these feelings. Uh, everyone 
has these feelings from time to time. You start serving the Lord and then something comes along and you think, wow, that, why is this so difficult? And why do people misunderstand me? And why are people talking about me behind my back? And why is all this happening? God, you didn't tell me it was gonna be like this. And the Lord would say, sure I did. Where were you when I said that the world hated me and so therefore they're gonna hate you? Where were you when I said in the world you will have tribulation? Where were you when I said, pick up your cross daily and follow me? He didn't say, pick up your cup of coffee and walk through the world. He said, pick up your cross and follow me. And so the Lord, the Lord hasn't fooled anybody. He's very upfront. It's, it's a, he, he's, he's a full disclosure kind of guy. You know, sometimes you get into things that you do get ripped off and you think, man, if I had known that, I wouldn't have signed up. But the Lord, he, he starts off by telling you now, if you come to me, it's, it, you're gonna have to carry a cross. People are gonna hate you if you're really serving me. At some point, you might even suffer real physical persecution. You'll have trouble for sure, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So the Lord discloses these things. Jeremiah, however, in verse nine, he developed a, a strategy, he came up with a strategy. He says, then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name, nanny, nanny. That's what the exclamation mark means. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back. I couldn't do it. And so here Jeremiah, we would say, tried to write a letter of resignation. He tried to quit and get a, get a new job. He was looking for work that didn't involve prophecy. But he couldn't do it. He couldn't contain God's word. Even though he said, I tried really hard, so hard that it wearied me trying to hold it back. Now, the truth is, you can quit if you really want to. We all know believers who are no longer really serving the Lord. They don't seem to have any internal fire upsetting them, nor are they weary from resisting, but that's because they have succeeded where Jeremiah failed. They have pressed through and quenched the fire of the Holy Spirit. They have resisted the Lord. You're seeing them after the fact settled into a mediocre spiritual life. Let me ask you this. The last time you had devotions and were talking to the Lord was one of your prayers, Father, give me a mediocre Christian life. Make my life as simple and mediocre as possible. I don't wanna really do anything for you. I don't wanna have anything come against me. I just wanna barely exist as a Christian and go to heaven in the end. Is that how you pray? Well, no, of course not. And, and yet, this is what we might as well pray when we quit serving the Lord because we think, hey, I, I'm not gonna do this anymore. I, I just can't take this anymore. This isn't what I signed on for. Verse 10, I heard many mocking, fear on every side. Report, they say, and we will report it. All my acquaintances watch for my stumbling, saying perhaps he can be induced. Then we will prevail against him and we will take our revenge on him. Jeremiah had renamed Peshur fear on every side, predicting the Babylonian invasion. Nothing had happened, not yet, so everybody mocked him. They said, okay, we'll just watch Peshur. Anything happening today, Peshur? No. Do you have fear on every side? No. Have you been taken captive to Babylon? No. You remember this preaching of Jeremiah, I'm not sure where we are in the timeline because it can be a little bit out of order, but he preached this message for 40 years before Babylon came. And so the people were mocking him. 
If you're a person that has followed Bible prophecy and, and really gets animated by Bible prophecy like I am, it, it helped bring me to the Lord in 1979. I've been telling people for over 30 years that the Lord Jesus is going to come and resurrect and rapture the church any moment. Did he do it? Okay, then it's any moment. Did it happen? And, and you know, you, you, people start to make fun of you. First of all, they make fun of you the first time you tell them there is a rapture. What are you taught? You're, you, you've been drinking Kool-Aid. <laughs> They've got rapture Kool-Aid at your church. Oh yeah, the Lord's gonna come back and living people are gonna be whoop, taken to heaven. I don't have time for that because I'm watching the latest UFO special where the aliens are gonna come back and take us out of here, you know? I mean, it's crazy the way people think, but they make fun of you, and they make even more fun of you 30 years later. And you know what a lot of Christians, a lot of Christians have moved away from prophecy. They don't talk about Bible prophecy. Why? They don't want to be ridiculed. What? How sad. The Bible has over 2,500 prophecies, two-thirds of which have already come true. That gives you rise to think that the, the other third are going to come true. We forget that a thousand years is as one day to the Lord and one day is as a thousand years, meaning God's in no hurry by our timetable and that the things he said were gonna happen, they have happened and they will happen. And so don't grow weary of that. But Jeremiah did. He said, look, I've been telling people that this big invasion is coming. You just now told me it was Babylon and now they're really making fun of me. I just can't take it anymore. Jeremiah has a breakthrough in the next set of verses. We love these verses, verses 11 through 13. If you underline your Bible in yellow for praise, this is it. But the Lord is with me as a mighty, awesome one. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. They will be greatly ashamed. They will not prosper. Their everlasting confusion will never be forgotten. Oh, Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous and see the mind and heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for I have pleaded my cause before you. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the poor from the hand of evildoers. Jeremiah realized all things were working together for the good. He remembered that he was being tested through his troubles. He reckoned that everything was going to unfold according to God's prophetic plan. And so his heart began to sing praises to the Lord. The song, however, was about as long as a ringtone. It doesn't last very long because immediately in verse 14, cursed be the day in which I was born. Let the day not be blessed in which my mother bore me. Let the man be cursed who brought news to my father saying, a male child has been born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew and did not relent. Let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noon because he did not kill me from the womb that my mother might have been my grave and her womb always enlarged with me. Why did I come forth from the womb to see labor and sorrow that my day should be consumed with shame? Jeremiah wished he'd never been born. He wished he had died in his mother's womb, that his mother's womb had been a perpetual grave for him. I want you to notice that this chapter ends right there. It ends abruptly. There's no response from the Lord, neither a rebuke nor an encouragement. It's so stunning that if you read commentaries on this section of Jeremiah, several intelligent scholarly commentators, their suggestion is that 
you just move this set of verses ahead of the other praise verses so that they don't bother you as much. So that you see Jeremiah breaking through with praise and then they don't have to deal with the ramifications of it. What we do see is this. Chapter 21 opens by saying, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord. These were the words that Jeremiah spoke, chapter 20, and then there's the word that the Lord spoke. God kept speaking to Jeremiah. Jeremiah kept boldly proclaiming the prophetic word. In earlier confessions like this, there's been about four of them, when Jeremiah poured out his heart, discouraged in his ministry, God answered him in various ways. If you look at the similar confessions of Bible individuals like King David or the Apostle Paul, you'll see God answer them in various ways. Sometimes he spoke to them, either a word of encouragement or rebuke. Sometimes he gave them scripture or a vision or sent an angel to minister to them. But other times he remained silent, at least as far as what is recorded for us in the word. And if you're strictly looking at the word, you have to say, well, in this case with Jeremiah and in some other cases with these other guys, there doesn't seem to be an answer. But all the time, the understanding that you have is that your help comes directly from the Lord. In the private confessions of Jeremiah, we encounter what one author said, the entire spectrum of human emotional distress Fear of shame, fear of failure, loss of strength, the doubting of faith, loneliness, pity, disappointment, turning to hostility toward God. I think some of us, maybe even a lot of us, have been there. Maybe you're there right now. You're desperate. You're despairing. You might even be suicidal. If so, at least you're in good company. Jeremiah was discouraged. David was often discouraged. The Apostle Paul described the care of the churches as an anxiety that came upon him daily. The prince of preachers, if we look outside of the Bible, Charles Spurgeon, we read his devotions, we love his devotions. I, I, I mean, I get done reading something Spurgeon said and I, I wanna quit because it's so profound and it has such insight. You may not know that he was given to fits of discouragement his entire life. He would often break out into uncontrollable crying for no apparent reason. He couldn't get a handle on it. What did these men do about their discouragement? Well, as far as I can tell, they spoke freely to the Lord about it. Behind the scenes, in private, Jeremiah spoke freely to the Lord. He poured out his heart and in it were doubts and fears and regrets and disappointments and discouragement. At times, he despaired of life. God brought him through it, and we ask, how? I don't know how, because we're not told how, not here. But we are shown who, not how. All we know is that Jeremiah talked with the Lord, and then he was enabled to go on serving him. Think of it like this. People often find a group to try to identify with to be among people similarly struggling. Many of you have gone to different groups. Maybe you go to a group now. We have a group that meets on Thursday nights to help people through recovery and with other various problems. The very fact there are others who have the same struggles helps you tremendously as you talk it out and you hear others say the same thing. 
And there's always a facilitator. There's always a counselor who's been there and can fully relate to you. Well, if you are broken and discouraged and desperate, then you have a group. It's been attended by Jeremiah and David and Paul and many other servants of God. There are a great cloud of witnesses that have gone before you. And it's facilitated by Jesus Christ, who is called in the Bible, one of the names of Jesus is Wonderful Counselor. I love that. Now, we, we pull that out at Christmas time. It's in that famous Isaiah passage. He's the wonderful, unto us a child is born, a son is given, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, everlasting father. Uh, and, and so we reserve it for Christmas. But I love that phrase, the wonderful counselor. Jesus is a wonderful counselor for so many reasons, I can't list them. But for example, he knows your every thought, being God. The Bible says of the Bible, of itself, that in the hands of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the word of God can discern between the soul and the spirit in your heart. No human counselor can do that. No human experience can do that. God can determine what's going on at the deepest part of your heart. You know, a lot of times um, when you're talking to somebody and maybe helping them through a problem, you get an idea of what their problem is, but that's not really their problem. Sometimes they explain something and you start to talk about something and say, no, that's not at all what I'm talking about. It's this. And then sometimes they don't even know what the problem is, but Jesus Christ does because he can discern ultimately between your soul and your spirit. At the same time, we know that Jesus is described as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He sweat great drops of blood for you one night in a garden on his way to be crucified for you on his way to the cross. And medical professionals talk about the fact that it was a stress reaction to the impending death on the cross of the sinless son of God that his blood vessels actually began to burst, his capillaries, and he was sweating blood. And so we have a wonderful counselor to go to. If you can find someone, another saint to talk to, that's great. As I said, we have our recovery group and we're not against that. But it's actually quite rare to find another Christian because on the one hand, you might stumble them in your honesty. People don't really like to know that their disciple or their pastor or their missionary is contemplating suicide and that they're so desperate you know, because they look and they say, well, I thought you had it all together. And maybe it's not right, but it happens. You, you, you can stumble people. On the other hand, this is more likely when you finally, you think, okay, I can't, I can't hold this in anymore. I have to pour out my heart to somebody. And you find somebody who you believe to be spiritual, and for all practical purposes, they are. If they haven't encountered something like that before, they give you some trite, cliche answer some simple Bible verse, which obviously powerful, and, but you need to come to that conclusion yourself. And they actually make you feel worse, like you shouldn't be feeling that way. So let's say you're Paul the Apostle and you say, the anxiety comes on me every day of the press and the weight of the churches. Well, Paul, be anxious for nothing. Yeah, I said that. I'm the one who said that. I know that, but I'm still, you know... It, and so there's this tension. Is there not this tension in the Christian life? I know that I'm not to be anxious for anything. I know that I'm not to worry about anything. 
But I am anxious and I do worry and I struggle and, and I'm trying to figure it, all that out. And the Lord says, just tell me about it. Just talk to me about it. Pour out your heart to me. And, and maybe we don't get as much relief as we could because we want to go to people first and to the Lord last. Jeremiah, think of him. He had no one else to talk to. Nowhere else to go. There was no group meeting for reproached prophets. You know, he couldn't flip through the yellow pages and say, where did the reproached prophets meet on Thursday night? There weren't any except the ones that were already in the word of God. Meantime, his entire society was crumbling around him as the people sunk further into idolatry and immorality. Everything he knew and loved was going to be destroyed and he too would be exiled. His very message was a message of destruction and exile. God even told him to quit praying for people. So if you're Jeremiah, you're just alone. And so when Jeremiah says, I'm alone, I'm reproached, I'm distressed, I'm desperate, he was. And so he pours out his heart before the Lord. His plight preaches to us that Jesus is in fact our sufficiency. He is always enough. While we may have greater resources at our disposal to aid us in discouragement than Jeremiah did, they must eventually point to Jesus as our sole sufficiency. I'm not saying don't use the resources that are available. I'm not saying to not talk to anybody. If talking to the Lord isn't enough, we will gladly talk to you and point you to Jesus Christ who eventually will reveal to you that he is your sufficiency. Now, one commentator wrote, and I quote, from Jeremiah's confessions, we learn that God does not call only those who have purged themselves from all weakness and who have achieved a high degree of perfection. He does not extend his call only to the brave, to those who never have doubts or problems. He entrusts his treasures to earthen vessels, frail creatures of dust. You have a friend closer than any brother in Jesus Christ who is ready to hear you pour out your heart. Maybe you've already quenched the fire resisting his promptings. Then just repent of that. Change your mind. Rededicate yourself. Pick up the cross and get back in the fight. If you are in the throes of some discouragement, let the Lord be your wonderful counselor. Keep pouring out your heart until he reveals something of himself to you that puts everything into perspective. Be patient. It may take a while, and it may be a word or a scripture or a vision. But you know what? Uh, it may just be what we call the ministry of presence. Some of you who've uh, dealt with grief, counseling, and tragedy or things like this, I, in my ministry as a chaplain, go through this a lot. They call it the ministry of presence, and what it means is you're just there representing hope, representing life. You don't say anything because there's nothing to say. You know, there are some human situations I've been in with people, uh, tragedies, deaths, and you know what? There is just nothing to say about it at the time. And I've heard people say things that are just stupid because you feel like I, I have to say something. This, this individual just lost their infant this, this terrible accident just happened and I just delivered them. I have to tell them something. And the truth of the matter is, you don't. You just have to be there representing life, representing hope, representing God. 
And I think sometimes the Lord's ministry in our life is a ministry of presence, and we're not happy about that. We're not satisfied with that. Because we immediately say, Lord, why? I want to know why. I want to know right now. Why did you do this? Why did you allow this? You're the sovereign God. You're omnipotent. You could have stopped this. Why did you determine that I need this tragedy right now? And we, we don't accept his ministry of presence. We know all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and that are called according to his purpose. We know that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. We know that our light affliction is but for a moment and it works for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. We know all those things. But when we're in the adversity, when some wild beast uh, is tearing us apart in terms of our trials, we want an answer. We want something right then. We want, we want you know, a vision. We want something. And all we get sometimes is platitudes from other people who've never been through those kinds of things. And I'm telling you that the Lord is there because he said, I will never, ever, no, never leave you or forsake you. And we need to get used to his ministry of presence because you never know when you're gonna be in a situation like Jeremiah where you really are the only person, just you and the Lord. I mean, it's great that we have resources, uh, you know, uh, groups and other people and churches and medications and things like that. I'm, I'm all for those things to help people. Jeremiah had none of those things but the presence of the Lord. And you know what? That's what this is teaching us, that ultimately he is our sufficiency. He has saved us. He is saving us. He will save us for eternity. And so pour out your heart to him. You have permission to speak freely. And then once you do, get up, be on fire. Let's pray.